Greetings, brethren. It's a privilege to be here today and to speak to you. I would like to talk with you today about prophecy. Sermons on prophecy are extremely interesting and exciting because they focus on the future. They focus on issues that are just over the horizon, issues that we're all excited and concerned about. But prophecy sermons can also be very instructive if they're practical, if they're helpful, and if they deal with real-life issues. When you mention prophecy, a lot of times we think of Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Amos. But today I want to focus on prophecies in the New Testament, prophecies written by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. The prophecies that I want to cover today have given the church of God valuable insights as to who we are, where we've been, and where we are going. I would like to focus on the prophetic letter that John wrote to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. These prophecies in the letter that John wrote to the seven churches contain instructions and admonitions for us today. They're very important. They're very informative. They contain helpful advice and helpful information that can help us deal with some of the confusing ideas that float around on the Internet today and circulate among the churches today. I've entitled my sermon today, Lessons from Revelation 2 and 3. Lessons from Revelation 2 and 3. These lessons, these are lessons that we cannot afford to ignore today. But first, we probably need a little bit of background as to what is behind these letters and behind the church's teachings over the years. You know, for years, the Church of God taught that the letter to the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, provided a historic overview of church history, that they refer to eras that the church would go through, down through history. About 10 to 12 years ago, we began hearing different things about these letters, that they didn't apply to us today, that they were just symbolic, that they didn't have relevance to the church today. Why the difference? What caused the change in the teachings? In order to understand that, we need to understand how theologians have viewed these letters to the seven churches and how they have viewed the book of Revelation. And you can find this information in many Bible handbooks. Over the years, the church has looked at the book of Revelation through certain eyes. They've used certain views to explain it. About 10 or 12 years ago, individuals that took over the Worldwide Church of God who had an agenda, who wanted to take the church back to the Protestant mainstream, shifted their views. And they began looking at the book of Revelation through totally different eyes. But when we understand how theologians have viewed the book of Revelation from various perspectives, we'll begin to understand what happened. There have been four traditional views of the book of Revelation, and I want to look at those very briefly as we begin the sermon. <clears throat> the first view is called a preterist view, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. What that means is the book of Revelation is only talking about contemporary history. It's only talking about the time of the early apostles, and that the book of Revelation was written to encourage the early church because they were being persecuted by the Roman Empire. That's one view of the book of Revelation, that it's only about contemporary history. It's not about the future. It's just about uh, the time in which John, who wrote the book, was living. And it's not about literal history. <clears throat> That's one view. Another view is that the book of Revelation is all spiritual symbols, it's all spiritual symbols, so it doesn't relate to real history. It doesn't relate to real people. It's only about symbolic things, good and bad and so on. 
It's not surprising that many liberals have taken these two particular views of the book of Revelation because it's very non-threatening. It's not talking about real people. It's not talking about our time today. It's just talking about contemporary history in John's day. So, you know, it's nice to read, but it's not really that significant. Many liberals have taken this view, and that is exactly what the individuals that took over the worldwide church of God have done. They've taken this very liberal view of the book of Revelation. However, there are several other views of the book of Revelation. One is that the first three chapters of the book of Revelation provide a historical overview of the history of the church. That these seven churches picture seven eras that the church of God would go through sequentially down through history. And that is one of the views that the church of God has taken, that we have taught over the years. That the book of Revelation, especially these first three chapters, provide this historical overview gives us an idea of where we've been, where we're going. And it's very helpful that way. A fourth view is called a futurist view of the book of Revelation. That the latter chapters of the book of Revelation, from chapter 4 onward to chapter 22, focus on events that will take place towards the end of the age and events leading up to the end of the age and the return of Jesus Christ. The church of God is also taken this view over the years. Conservative biblical scholars tend to take these last two views of the book of Revelation. And what happened in the church of God about 10 or 12 years ago, younger men came in with more liberal ideas, wanting to take the church back into the Protestant mainstream, and they opted for the first two views that we talked about, this preterist view and the spiritualist view. However, the church of God has historically taken the last two views, that the first Three chapters of the book of Revelation provide this historical overview of eras that the church would go through. And the latter chapters of the book of Revelation focus on the future events leading up to the end of the age and the return of Jesus Christ. The living church of God still takes these views, these last two views. And that's why we differ so much from other churches that take a more liberal view. Let's talk just a little bit, too, about prophecy, how God views prophecy. Prophecy is one of the issues that sets the Bible totally apart from any other religious book on the face of the earth. The Koran does not contain prophecies. The Book of Mormon does not contain prophecies. The sayings of various philosophers in India or China don't deal with specific Bible prophecies, but the Bible does. The Bible does make very specific prophecies, and it sets the Bible apart from any other book on the face of the earth. But let's notice quickly. I'll give you a couple of scriptures, and we will turn to some. How God views prophecy and what prophecy should mean to us. In Isaiah 41, verses 21 through 24, you don't need to turn there, but you might want to look at these things later. It says essentially that God alone... God alone is able to predict the future and make it come to pass because he is God. You know, scientists today and people that study the future are very reluctant to predict the future. They say, in fact, anybody that tries to predict the future, especially in the area of geopolitical areas, uh, is basically uh, is crazy if they're trying to predict the future because they can't. They're going to make big mistakes, and yet the Bible does. The Bible makes very specific pronouncements in this field of geopolitics. Mentions people, mentions places, mentions proximate dates in some cases. And yet anybody that studies the future knows that human beings can't do that. But these scriptures say that God alone is able to do that. If you turn to Isaiah chapter 46, Isaiah mentions several times how God predicts the future. This is one of the proofs that there is a supernatural God that is able to do this. And Isaiah 46, beginning in verses 9 and 10, says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end, the outcome, from the very beginning, declaring the future from the very beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done. 
predicting the future, saying, My counsel shall stand. The word in the Hebrew here for counsel means plan or purpose. My plan will happen. My purpose will stand. What I have conceived, God says, and predicted, I'm going to bring to pass. That's how God views prophecy in the Bible. That's what he's revealed about Bible prophecy. In Genesis 18, verse 17, you can check this later. But God did not keep Abraham in the dark about what his plans were for the future. God revealed to Abraham what he was going to do in the future. The Bible tells us Abraham was a friend of God. And God shared his plans and his purposes with his friend Abraham. In Amos 3, verse 7, we're told that God does nothing without revealing first to his servants what is going to happen in the future. That's how God has dealt with his servants. He reveals his plans and his purposes to his servants, the prophets. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about those that have been called and granted the Holy Spirit are able to understand the mysteries of God. God is working out a plan and purpose on this earth that is a mystery to the world. But Paul says we have the mind of God once we have been given the Spirit of God and we can begin to understand the mysteries of God, the mysterious plan that he's working out on this earth what the world doesn't understand. Finally, in Second Peter, let's turn there, Second Peter. Peter makes some very interesting statements. Second Peter chapter 1. In verse 19, he said, We also have the prophetic word made more sure. I've got a new King James version. The old King James says, We have a more sure word of prophecy. The we that Peter was talking about was the church. The church of God has a more sure word of prophecy. Mr. Herbert Armstrong was talking about back in the late 30s and in the early 40s that Germany would come back from the ashes and lead a revived Roman Empire in Europe. He was saying that in the 40s. Germany was being bombed into smithereens. How did he know that? He understood the identity of Germany in prophecy. And he was able to say Germany is going to come back because the prophetic references to Germany indicate they will play a very powerful role in the affairs of this world at the end of the age, just before Jesus Christ returns. But he was able to speak powerfully at that time because he understood Bible prophecy. Understanding the identity of nations is a key to understanding Bible prophecy. One of the reasons that the church has been given this understanding of Bible prophecy and the identity of nations is so that we can provide a witness and a warning to the world. God does reveal to his servants first what is going to happen on this earth so that they can then warn the world and provide hope to God's people. So prophecy plays a very powerful role in the church of God, a very powerful role with God's people. It's a very important subject. Now let's go to the book of Revelation with this background. And notice a few things. Notice the parallels in the very beginning of the book of Revelation to what we talked about earlier about Bible prophecy. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice Jesus Christ revealed these things to John the Apostle. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass. You can check back in Amos 3, verse 7, where this is God's principle. He reveals the future to his servants so they can explain what the future is all about. God shares these things, these insights, these prophetic understandings with his servants so that they can then share this with mankind. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to show his servants things which must shortly come to pass. In other words, beginning in John's time, these things began to happen. And then they will continue up until the return of Jesus Christ. 
Verse 3, it says, blessed is he. Now, this word blessed in the Greek means to be envied. To be envied is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep these things which are written in it, for the time is near. These things are going to begin to come to pass, and they did begin to come to pass in the days of John. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Here's the SPS, the specific purpose statement of the book. John is writing a letter, which we will read then in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, to the seven churches which are in Asia. This is the purpose of the book, or at least the early part of it. Down in verse 19, it says, Write these things which you have seen, the visions that John was going to receive, and also the, the information that God was providing, Write these things which you have seen and the things which are and things which will take place after this. He was to write them in a book. That's the book that we're going to be reading today. The seven angels in verse 20 are the seven uh, stars, or the seven stars are the seven angels, we are told here, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So let's look at the... Seven churches talked about here in Revelation 2 and 3. And let's ask the question, what can we learn today from the letters to these seven churches? Now, historically, the church of God has taken the position over the years that there's a threefold meaning to these letters, to the seven churches. And we are not the only ones that understand this. The Seventh-day Adventists understand that there are a number of meanings to these letters. They view the meanings a little bit differently than we do, but they understand the overall concept that these letters were written to seven churches. These churches were on a mail route, and the mail went sequentially from one to the other. So we have viewed these letters to the seven churches in three ways. Number one was that they described local problems in particular churches, local problems in local churches at that time. And if you go through Halley's handbook or another Bible handbook that describe the geography and the characteristics of these seven churches, you will find that aspects of their history, aspects of their geography dovetail into the lessons to these seven churches and descriptions about these seven churches. But the first meaning of the letters would be that they describe local problems in local churches in John's day. A second application of these letters would be they describe problems that are characteristics of human beings and characteristics of the churches down through history. So we can all learn from these letters depending on whenever we read the time period. And a third meaning would be that these churches are symbolic of seven eras, seven historical periods of time, seven periods of time down through history that the church would go through. And during each one of these church eras, a particular group of people would be dominant and they would be characteristic of that particular era, as we will see. So putting all these things together, when we read these seven, uh, when we read the letters to the seven churches, to the seven eras of the church, we can get an overview of church history, what the church would be like in the first century, what it would be like in later centuries, some of the challenges that they would face. What I want to do in the sermon today is ask, what lessons, what lessons can we learn from a number of these eras? I'm not going to cover every era, but I want to focus on particular ones. What lessons can we learn from these eras that will be applicable to us today? One of the sayings is that if we don't learn from history, we will repeat the mistakes of history. If we don't learn the lessons of history, we will repeat the mistakes of history. And John is actually listing some of the mistakes that were made by various church eras so that we can learn from these things and avoid making some of the same mistakes that our spiritual ancestors have made. Let's look first at the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was a major city in Asia Minor. It was a port city where a number of trade routes coming out of Central Asia uh, came to the coast there on the, uh, the coast of modern Turkey. 
And then the goods that came across these trade routes were loaded on boats and then shipped either to Greece or to Rome. In John's day, towards uh, the 90s, towards the end of the first century, Ephesus was really a city in decline. Their harbor had begun to silt up. Uh, It was harder to get boats in there. They had a major temple there that uh, was selling uh, religious uh, artifacts, so to speak, very similar to modern-day Rome. You go to Rome and you buy little crucifixes and plates with uh, 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 pictures of Jesus or pictures of Mary. Uh, You can buy all kinds of uh, souvenirs in Rome. And Ephesus in John's day was very similar. They made little statues of the goddess Diana. They had other trinkets that they sold, but it was kind of a parasitic economy at that time. Uh, Their harbor had silted up. They didn't have the trade that they did before, but they were attracting pilgrims to this uh, marvelous temple that was there, and they were living off this religious trade. But it was a city in decline, essentially. They had passed their peak. It was in decline. So John is writing to the church at Ephesus. There was a church there, but this was also towards the end of the first century. Jesus Christ came. His ministry was in the 30s. The gospel had spread. A number of ideas were being incorporated into the church from paganism. And the church was facing a crisis towards the end of the first century of false religions being incorporated, being worked in by various people. But let's notice the instruction. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things, says he, This angel that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands among these seven churches. I know your works. The works of the early first century church, Paul wrote 14 books in the New Testament. The apostles preached and traveled and wrote the Gospels. Thousands of people were converted. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. They were trying to live a Christian life in a pagan empire. And there was a lot of pressure to do that. But notice towards the latter part of verse 2, And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you found them to be liars. So there were people in the first century claiming to be apostles, self-appointed apostles, running around preaching things that were just not true. And the early church had to examine, had to test, had to determine who was an apostle, truly an apostle, and who was a self-appointed false apostle. This was one of their challenges. You had to do that. Verse 3, And you have persevered and have patience and have labored in my name's sake and have not become weary. So they had to endure persecution. They had to endure difficulties. The apostle James was murdered. Uh, Peter and John were thrown in prison. Paul was stoned. These were things that happened to the leadership in the church and obviously to members in the church. They were persecuted. So they had to test and examine and determine who was a, a true apostle and who was a false apostle. They had to persevere. Verse 4, it says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You have left your first love. In other words, they were drifting away from the truth. As we find in other scriptures, they were following false gospels. Verse 5, it says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the first works, else I come to you quickly, and remove your lampstand. So three of the challenges that this early church faced were having to deal with false apostles, bringing in false ideas, having to persevere under difficulties, and also they drifted away from their first love. Let's look at a couple of things uh, and to see how some of these things apply to us today. You know, we've got people running around today claiming to be self-appointed apostles, that God appointed them to be an apostle, self-proclaimed prophets and other self-proclaimed leaders saying, well, I'm going to hold on to the truth and I'm going to start my little church over here and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. You know, we have the same challenge today that the early Christians had in the Ephesian era of the church having to determine who is a true teacher and who is a false apostle or a false teacher. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, jot it down and check it later. The Bible says basically if they speak not according to this word, 
There is no light. There is no truth in them. You know, people like to quote other booklets and other writings and so on, but they have trouble with the Bible because in many cases their ideas don't square with the Bible. Notice in Second uh, Corinthians, for example, <clears throat> this is a scripture that is often used against us, but it's taking the scriptures out of context to do that. In Second Corinthians chapter 11, <clears throat> Paul is talking about false teachers that would come, and notice what he has to say about them. Verse 3, But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness. You know, Satan appeared to Eve as a serpent, and, uh, uh, you know, he, he tried to, to he, he tempted Eve. You know, look at that fruit on the tree. I know you've been told that it's, it's, you're not supposed to eat it, but look, <laughs> it really looks pretty good, doesn't it? Uh, just taste it a little bit. You know, you don't have to eat the whole thing, but just taste a little bit. And I think you'll find it tastes really pretty good. And she bit. She was deceived. And then she said, Adam, come here. This isn't so bad. Look at this. Satan is very subtle. People that operate today are very subtle. And they'll say, well, we're just going to follow Mr. Armstrong. But then they go off on this tangent and this tangent and come up with a bunch of other ideas. They're very subtle. But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, a Jesus with long hair, a Jesus that's trying to get everybody into heaven, or a Jesus that comes down hard on people, they're preaching another Jesus. Or if you have received a different spirit, I've talked to people that have attended other church organizations, and they make the comment there's a different spirit over there. You know, some spirits are very attacking, very accusing, and other spirits are very wishy-washy. But Paul warned about people coming with a different spirit or receiving a different spirit. You know, we've had people that have left us, go with another organization, then they turn around and blast us over the Internet with all kinds of accusations that in most, in most cases they're totally wrong. That's a different spirit. But if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, you know, what is a different gospel? You know, we've been accused of preaching a different gospel today because we say that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the sins of mankind is part of the gospel. The Bible says that. And yet there are people that say, no, Jesus Christ is not part of the gospel. Well, that is not a biblical statement. You cannot support that from the Bible. The Bible says something very different. You know, the Apostle Paul talked about a gospel of grace. He didn't apologize for the term, Acts chapter 20, verse 24. He was talking about a gospel of grace. He said, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the grace of God. Paul had killed people. Paul had dragged people out of the church, put them in jail. And yet God saw fit to make him an apostle. And when Paul says, I'm an apostle by the grace of God, by the gift of God, by the favor of God. Paul was talking about a gospel of grace. It was not some uh, sticky, touchy, feely Protestant concept. He was talking about the grace of God, the forgiveness of God. The, the, the gift of God, to have his mind open to understand the truth. Now, you and I understand the truth of God because, because of the grace of God. That's part of the biblical gospel. Paul talked about in Ephesians 1, verse 13, about a gospel of salvation, that Jesus Christ came to this earth to die for the sins of mankind. So that we can be forgiven, that we can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we can begin to understand the plan, the purpose of God, that we can gain eternal life. These are the gifts of God. This is part of the gospel of salvation. The gospel, the biblical gospel, is about a coming kingdom of God where Christ returns to reign on this earth. It's about the forgiveness of our sins. It's about the grace of God opening our minds to understand. It is about a gospel of salvation. This is all part of the gospel. And yet there are people today, people that claim to be apostles, that are saying the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is not part of the gospel. That's wrong. That's not biblical. 
That's totally out in left field. It is a different gospel. And yet we've been accused of preaching a different gospel because we say, as the Bible says, that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is part of the gospel. But Paul is saying here, people will come preaching a different gospel. And he labels them basically false teachers. Down in verse 12 of 2 Corinthians 11. And Paul is very blunt. He says, but what I do, I also, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded as just as we are. Paul was an apostle. He says, some other people want to be regarded as apostles. But he says, I'm going to challenge them. I'm going to deal with them head on. Verse 13, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles. You know, giving long sermons to convince their little audience that they are an apostle. Paul is talking about here people who transform themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself, or Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. You know, people want to appear as ministers of God, and yet they're teaching different gospels. They're way out on the limb on a lot of Looney Tune ideas, transforming themselves. No wonder for Satan himself transform, trans, Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers, Satan's ministers. Now, people aren't going to tell you, I'm a minister of Satan. They're going to say, well, I'm a minister of Jesus Christ. I'm a minister of God. But you have to determine by checking what they're saying with the Bible, whether or not they are ministers of God. Notice one other scripture while we're on this subject. Go back to Acts chapter 20, where Paul was meeting for the last time with the elders of the church in Ephesus. And he warns them about a number of things. Acts chapter 20. Beginning in verse 28, he says, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now, when you are appointed to a position in the church, whether it's a deacon, an elder, a leader, you need to take that very seriously. It should not go to your head. But you've been placed in a position of leadership to be an overseer, to shepherd the church of God. Shepherds don't walk around beating the sheep. They don't deceive the sheep. They lovingly care for the sheep, which he purchased with his own blood. Paul was talking about the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for our sins. For I know this, after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. You know, wolves look for people that have problems, spiritual wolves. They try and plant doubts in people's minds. And then they beckon them over here and then they pounce on them. That's how wolves operate. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up. Men will come from among you. Some of your leaders will turn around and lead people off in a wrong direction. I was talking with a minister recently and he said, I think some people have found out that starting their own church is a good family business. It's profitable. And all you need is a few followers. And some people have actually figured out how many people they need to make an organization run. But Paul is saying, also from among your own selves, men will rise up speaking perverse things, misleading things that are partly true, partly false, and they will mislead people to draw away disciples after themselves. That's happening today. People start their little groups. And they get a little group around themselves. And they have their own unique little set of ideas. But they're not doing the work of God. They're not publishing hundreds of thousands of magazines. They're not on hundreds of television stations. You know, thousands of people are not responding. They've got their own little group with their own little unique ideas. But they're not preaching a powerful gospel. They've got a bunch of little things that they focus on. That's what Paul was talking about. This was in the first century. But we're facing some of the same issues today. We need to be aware of these things. Therefore, watch. Keep your eyes open. Remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears, pleading with you, wake up. You don't go off on that little group over there. You don't, don't buy into that crazy idea. 
Understand what the biblical gospel is. Forget the stuff on the Internet the people are throwing up there to gather a little audience for themselves. Brethren, this was what was happening in the early first century church, in the Ephesus era, the Ephesian era of the church. They were having to deal with people preaching false gospels. They were leaving their first love. Notice in uh, Galatians chapter 1. It's a very interesting book, a very interesting chapter. Uh, Quotes here are used that are taken out of context. We have been accused of preaching a different gospel because we're talking about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ being part of the gospel along with the coming kingdom of God. And then people turn to these verses and say, see, they're preaching a different gospel. But they're taking these verses out of context when you read the book of Galatians. Notice what Paul says here in chapter 1 of Galatians, verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ. Their mind had been opened to understand the truth of God because of the grace of God. And we're being accused of preaching a false gospel when we talk about grace today. To a different gospel. What is the different gospel that these people were having to deal with? which is not another, but there are some who trouble you. Some who trouble you. And there are people running around today troubling the church of God because they're trying to promote a different viewpoint on the gospel that is not biblical. Some who trouble you, who want to pervert, change, twist, limit the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And what was the issue? When you read through the book of Galatians, the issue here was that certain people were trying to convince new converts that they needed to be circumcised. Gentiles, they need to be circumcised in order to be in the church. Paul was saying, no, that is not true. That is not part of the gospel. He's not talking about the kingdom of God here. He's talking about the teachings of the Bible. He's talking about what he calls the truth of the gospel. In verse 3 of chapter 2, Paul drops the the subject or uh, mentions the subject. He says, not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. So he's introducing the issue. But this occurred because false brethren, now here was the problem, secretly brought in... who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that we might, uh, <clears throat> that they might bring us into bondage, back under the legalistic aspects of the old covenant, to whom we did not yield submission even for one hour. We didn't have to stand for that. We don't need to listen to those ideas, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So Paul is talking about the truth of the gospel here in reference to this idea of of circumcision that was necessary to become part of the church. Then he mentions the situation of Peter. It says, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. He was wrong. He was doing things that were not right. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. Again, in the Jewish society at this time, it was just considered wrong. It was sinful to associate with Gentiles. But in the church, God was calling people out of the Gentile world. It was not wrong uh, to be a Christian and associate with Gentiles. But when they came, these people from uh, Jerusalem, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision, people promoting this idea that uh, new converts had to be circumcised, males anyways. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. You know, other Jewish people that were there in Antioch disassociated themselves from the Gentiles when these people promoting the idea of circumcision came along. So that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. This was affecting the church in Antioch. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Now, Paul is not talking about the kingdom of God here. He's talking about the truth that you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow these Old Testament legal customs, so to speak, to become a Christian. And he says that's the truth of the gospel. 
So the gospel does involve more than just the kingdom of God. It involves learning to live by the laws of God, but also from a New Testament perspective. This is part of the gospel. And yet people are saying today, using these scriptures in Galatians, that to say that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is part of the the gospel is a different gospel. Well, that's not what the book says. See, people are twisting these things. They're taking it out of context. We need to understand what the true gospel is today. Notice in Romans chapter 1. Again, we've spoken on this in other sermons, but just to realize the church in Ephesus, the early first century church, there were issues over the gospel. People were perverting the gospel. And we're facing some of those same issues today. Romans chapter 1. Verse 1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Paul was separated to preach the gospel. What was he preaching? What was the gospel about? Separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's part of the gospel. Who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. That is part of the gospel. Jesus Christ went into the grave, but walked out of that grave. He was resurrected, one of the signs that he was the Messiah, and that we can gain eternal life by following in his footsteps, through whom we have received grace... This capacity to understand the truth of God, to have our sins forgiven, and apostleship. Paul stood by while Stephen was being stoned, and yet through the grace of God, he was made an apostle. You You and I would be doing totally different things today if God in his grace had not opened your mind to understand the truth of God. This is part of the gospel. Paul is talking about the gospel right here. So we need to understand what the true gospel is today and not be led off course by people who may claim to be an apostle or claim to be a minister of God or claim to be a prophet of God because they're teaching totally different things. A couple of other issues that are floating around today. Some people feel that you have to believe that Mr. Armstrong was the Elijah in order to be in the church of God. And they make this a towering gospel, or towering message of the gospel, this idea that Mr. Armstrong was Elijah. Maybe he was. We'll have to see. Time will tell. But, you know, the Bible does not make this. The scriptures do not make this issue of the Elijah a towering, gospel, a towering message of the Bible. It's just not there. Now, you guys mentioned two or three times. You go back to Malachi. Uh, at the very end of the Old Testament, a prophecy of someone that would come uh, before Jesus Christ and prepare the way. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the the, uh, great and dreadful day of the Lord. So someone would come preparing the way. Mr. Armstrong did prepare the way as he could in his lifespan. He gathered together, synthesized, pulled together an awful lot of the truth. And we recognize that today. Some people feel, though, that he was the Elijah. Maybe he was, maybe he's not. We'll have to wait and see. You know, not everything follows the parallel. John the Baptist is identified by the Bible as being the Elijah that would come prior to the first coming of Jesus Christ. In Matthew seventeen eleven. And those particular verses, Jesus Christ identifies John as one who would come fulfilling these scriptures, at least the initial fulfillment of these prophecies. In Matthew seventeen eleven, says Jesus answered and said uh, to them, Elijah truly is coming, because the disciples had asked in verse ten here. His disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? They understood the prophecies. They were watching. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Elijah truly is coming first and will restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah has already come. Now, when you read Malachi chapter 4, you realize it's talking about an Elijah person coming at the end of the age, just before the great day of the Lord. So that couldn't apply totally to John the Baptist. That's going to have to be fulfilled yet in the future. 
But Christ applies a duality here. Elijah truly is coming, will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah's already come. And they did not know, but uh, did to him whatever they wished. Uh, they killed him, basically. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. He's going to die too. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So Jesus Christ identifies who the first Elijah would be that would come preparing the way for Jesus Christ. But the Bible doesn't identify the person who will come a second time. So we've got to be very careful reading names in here. Maybe Mr. Armstrong was. We'll have to see. But John the Baptist was alive when Jesus Christ came. He was there when Christ came. Mr. Armstrong has been dead for over 20 years. So whether or not someone else will come along, we'll have to wait and see. But what's interesting is after Matthew 17, 11, 12, and 13 here, the subject hardly ever comes up in the New Testament. Paul doesn't mention John the Baptist being Elijah. He doesn't tell the church, you have got to believe this. This is a towering doctrine of the Bible. You've got to believe it or you, you can't be in the church. Some are saying things similar to that today. We're not saying that. We recognize what Mr. Armstrong did. I understand where I learned the truth, especially about the identity of Israel, about uh, not going to heaven whenever we die. I understand where I learned those things. It was from Mr. Armstrong's writings, his program, and from other preaching from the church at that time. But we've got to be careful about going out on a limb and making Mr. Armstrong into something that, uh, that he wasn't sure that he was. You know, sometimes he felt that he might be fulfilling these things. I think that was his goal, was to fulfill these things, the prophecies about John the Baptist or about being the Elijah. But that's what we are also trying to do in the church today. But this is not something to split the church over. It was hardly mentioned throughout the rest of the New Testament. And we just need to understand that, get our balance on that. This is not something to leave the church over. And some are saying today that we've got to go back and uh, stop wearing makeup and do all these things because we've got to get back to the faith that was once delivered. You know, when you look at the history of the church of God in this era, for the first 20 years of the church, from roughly the 1930s to the early 1950s, people wore makeup in the church under Mr. Armstrong's leadership. And then from about 1953 or so to uh, uh, the uh, early 1970s, the church, ladies in the church, did not wear makeup. And then for a period of seven or eight years, from about 74 to about 81, the church did wear makeup again, or the ladies in the church did. You know, I'm wearing a little bit of makeup here. Uh, Dr. Meredith wears it whenever he does a program. Mr. Ames wears it because whenever you don't wear it under these lights, you look kind of weird. Uh, Mr. Armstrong wore makeup whenever he did some television programs. You know, if wearing makeup is wrong, then we should never wear it at all. But the history of the church has been for the first 20 years, ladies did wear it in the church. Then for the next 20 years, they didn't wear it. Then for a period of seven or eight years, they did wear it. And then for the last uh, five or six years under Mr. Armstrong, they didn't wear it. Some people assume that uh, wearing makeup is this terrible sin. You're going to burn in a lake of fire. If you read the writings of Mr. Armstrong, he said the reason it was a sin is because people who wore it during the period of time when the church had said it shouldn't be worn, you're going against church government. And that was what made it a sin. You know, the Bible is not that clear on the issue. If you go back to Isaiah chapter 3, Isaiah chapter 3, this is a scripture that we have gone to in the past. Uh, people are going to it today. They're using uh, some information from Clark's commentary, which is not correct whenever it talks about this particular verse. And uh, from a language standpoint, uh, it didn't support what we tried to make it support in the past. Isaiah 3, verse 16 says, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and they walk with outstretched necks. Now, Isaiah is talking about social conditions in Israel. During his day, Isaiah was writing towards the, uh, the peak of their prosperity. And if you look around at the malls today, you'll see girls walking around uh, very near this description. The daughters of Zion are haughty. They walk around with outstretched necks uh, and wanton eyes. Now, Clark's commentary said with painted eyes, but that's not what this verse is saying. The word wanton eyes comes from a Hebrew word that means to flirt. You know, they're flirtatious with their looks. 
Now, Clark's commentary says painted eyes, but that's not what the verse says. It says with seducing eyes, flirtatious eyes, walking and mincing as they walk, making a jingling with their feet. It was a very sensuous appearance is what is being condemned here. You know, I'm wearing a suit today because that's social custom. People can get very vain if they wear these $500 or $1,000 or $3,000 suits. Uh, wearing a suit can be an item of vanity. Wearing makeup can be an item of vanity. But also it can be an item of, of basically accepted dress in normal places. And Mr. Armstrong made a comment one time. He says, you know, we don't want our ladies looking like Salvation Army women. It's just so plain and that you stand out that way. Mr. Armstrong also said we should never be the first ones to adopt a social trend, but we shouldn't be the last either. Now, the Bible doesn't condemn makeup, but it does condemn uh, a flirtatious appearance. You look at some of the other scriptures that talk about this. It talks about uh, Jezebel painting her face and putting on gold ornaments. You know, ladies, if you have uh, gold earrings on or a gold necklace, uh, you may need to take that off too if you want to just literally follow word for word everything here and take it out of context. You know, being well-dressed is not wrong. Following social customs that are balanced and decent is not wrong. You know, when I came, be, uh, came with the Global Church of God, uh, I don't know, 15 years ago or something like that, I talked with Mr. Carl McNair, who was over the ministry, and I said, what is your position on makeup? He says, we're going to leave it alone. <laughs> we're going to leave it alone. And that was based on this history in the church of being one way, then another way, then another way, then another way. So we're going to leave it alone. We're going to teach balance. We're going to teach moderation. And my wife sold makeup years ago in a department store, and she was told to tell the, the customers the way to wear makeup is to Wear it so that you can't tell you have it on. In other words, just a slight enhancement, that's all. Mr. Armstrong had made comments, I think, years ago. He said, if you have a blemish on your cheek or something, it's not wrong to cover that up. Let's make up. And we need a balance on this thing, that we don't become more righteous or less righteous because we wear a little bit of makeup, because I wear a suit and a tie. And we need to be balanced on these things. And yet there are people that want to make a religion out of this. You know, the issue of birthdays. The Bible doesn't say thou shalt not keep birthdays. Now, over the years in the church, I think we've had a balanced approach to that, or many people have. You know, we don't celebrate birthdays in the sense of having big parties. You can go to Matthew 14, I believe it is, where it talks about Herod's birthday and John the Baptist was killed on that birthday. But you need to study a little bit about the customs. This was a bash that might have gone on for several days. Herod made certain comments and certain decisions, promises. He was probably inebriated because then he had to back off from those promises. He was not uh, focused right. You know, but to sit down, as we did with our boys when they were growing up, in a family meal, not a party, no birthday cakes, but to sit down with the boys and just tell them, you know, the day that you came into our life, the day that you were born, the day that you joined our family was very special for us. And we want to congratulate you for making it through another year, especially for young people, little kids. You know, they trip and fall, could run in front of cars. Making it through another year is, is a big accomplishment. But, you know, it gave them a sense of identity. It gave them a sense of belonging, the fact that they were appreciated, that they were valued, you know, it's not something we have to pretend is a bad thing. But I was also reading a uh, clipping in the paper recently of a young girl that turned 16, I think, over in Atlanta. They actually did a TV special where the mother took this uh, girl shopping and spent um, thousands of dollars on her, took her to a car dealer, bought a $40,000 automobile. And then they actually had a planner that was planning this birthday party. And they said, if my daughter wants a parade down the main street of Atlanta, make it happen. And yet the gist of the article was people are reacting against this excessiveness, you know, just going crazy for these things. But to sit down, that's very different from sitting down and talking with your children in your own family without a party, without gifts or anything. You're just saying, you know, we, we regard this day as very special when you were born. And Mr. Armstrong, I believe, gave a rose to his mother 
in her later years, acknowledging she had made it through another year. You know, for little kids, making it through a year is a big thing. And for older people, the older we get, it's a big thing to make it through another year. Yeah, we need balance in these things. But to start a church and make this a big issue is really to miss our calling, is to lose our focus. You know, our focus is to preach the gospel of a coming kingdom of God when Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth and to preach this to the entire world. You know, a little group meeting in a little corner over here is not publishing hundreds of thousands of magazines. It's not on hundreds of television stations. It's not getting thousands of responses. It's not doing the work. It's creating a little living room organization, a little family organization that will draw some people that may think they're holding on to the truth, but they're literally leaving the work of God. They're literally leaving the work of God. Brethren, these are things we need to understand. The early church in the Ephesian era was going through some of the same tests that we are going through today. They had to identify people that were claiming to be apostles and were not. They had to do that. They had to hold fast to what their purpose was. Let's look at some other um, eras of the church. We'll go through these a little bit more rapidly. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it talks about the, uh, I'd like to focus on the Thyatira era. I'm not going to focus on specific dates here, but more on uh, what was going on and the lessons that we can learn. Thyatira era was roughly from around 1000 A.D. to around 1500 A.D., give or take a little bit of time. The Thyatira era was a period that some of the dominant church organizations were the Waldensians. Waldensians, these were people, followers of Peter Waldo, but their history apparently goes back much earlier than Peter Waldo. Waldensians are generally associated with northern Italy, up in the Alpine valleys towards the northern part of Italy. Across the Alps over into France, uh, these people were called Cathars, uh, pure people. Some people think they're different, but whenever you check the, some of the history, uh, testimonies of inquisitors during the uh, Catholic Inquisition, one of the inquisitors says the Cathars, and this probably is not all the Cathars, but, but some of them, uh, and Waldensians are basically the same people. Some of them kept the Sabbath, some of them kept the holy days, sometimes the dietary laws. Uh, the early uh, Christians in the the Reformation period of time, uh, viewed the Waldensians as, as, as a holdover from the primitive early church. But the Waldensians and the Cathars were uh, some of the prominent uh, churches during this Thyatiran period. Northern Italy, southern France, over into Spain, up into southern Germany, and even up into England. Some of those people held on to the truth some of them actually then joined the Protestant Reformation. There's a record of a conference that was held up there in northern Italy. It was a week-long conference. They don't have a lot of records what was discussed, but one of the books that we came across in the library in Geneva uh, several years ago was a fairly recent study that mentioned that after a week of discussions, the younger ministers, views of the younger ministers prevailed, and they joined the Protestant Reformation. The implication is not everybody did. You know, we were in Italy uh, a number of years ago, several years ago, and I asked uh, a young lady who was a librarian there at one of the Waldensian organizations. I said, did these people keep the Sabbath? She said, some people think they did, and some people think they didn't. In all probability, there were groups within the Waldensians that held on to the Sabbath, held on to the holy days, and others left go of those things. However, due to the, the, the pressure that was brought on these people, the Pope actually initiated a crusade to destroy the Waldensians, came in, slaughtered people. Because of the pressure that was brought on them, some of these people sat in services on Sunday. They baptized their children. Some of them served in armies to give the appearance that they were going along with the prevailing teachings. They compromised. And if you read through this section in uh, verses 18 through um, 
about uh, 29 here in chapter 2 about the church in Thyatira. They, they committed adultery spiritually. They compromised some of their teachings. We've got people today who understand when the Sabbath is, and if the group they're part of meets on Sunday, some of those people go and sit there, but then they keep the Sabbath on their own. The early church, the, the church of Thyatira did this. What's interesting is the Thyatira era was approximately from 1000 to 1500 A.D. But there are Waldensian churches that still exist today. The era is over in which they were predominant. But some of the organizations have continued. You know, some people are saying today that the, church, the living church of God is teaching that eras of the church are contemporary. No, we're not. The eras are sequential. One follows another. But some of the organizations continue. You can drive up here to um, Valdez, a little town north of Charlotte. And there's a Waldensian uh, Presbyterian church there. They keep Sunday. They keep Christmas. In Italy, there's a Waldensian Methodist church. And they keep Sunday. The, the, the church organization has continued, but their era is over. Looking at the Sardis era, beginning here in uh, chapter 3, it says you're, uh, you have a name that are alive, but you're dead. Mr. Armstrong says that he feels that he came in contact with the Sardis era of the church. They had a gospel about uh, the third angel's message. They didn't understand the identity of Israel. He tried to introduce those things, and uh, they wouldn't buy it. Uh, their era basically ended about the time Mr. Armstrong was called in the early 1930s. And if you check the records of the Waldens, or excuse me, the uh, Seventh-day Baptist Church up in Newport, Rhode Island, their numbers actually increased but then began to decline about the same time Mr. Armstrong was being called to understand the truth of God. There were thousands of people in the Seventh-day Baptist Church in New England at one time. Uh, Brown University was started by people linked with the Seventh-day Baptist Church. The first two governors of Rhode Island were Sabbath keepers. But they're not prominent up there anymore. They do have congregations in South America and other places around the country. In fact, uh, I think some Sardis churches today uh, claim that they have 300,000 people around the world. The point I want to make is some of the organizations from the Sardis era have continued, but their era is over. But some of the organizations have continued to today. Philadelphia, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7, has an open door, God says. You have you've kept my word, not denied my name. When you look at the statistics from the period of time that Mr. Armstrong led the church, roughly the 1930s to about 19. Say, so we'll make about 1990 or so, roughly 60 to 70 years. You know, the membership of the church climbed to about 150,000 people that came to the feast. We were publishing over 8 million magazines at that time. We were reaching around the world. We were the biggest purchasers of radio religious time in the world. But then about 1995, things just dropped off dramatically. There was an era the Philadelphia era under Mr. Armstrong. That era is over. Today we've got churches going off in all kinds of different directions. People are making their own decisions. You know, Laodicea means, Laos means, is a word that means people. And Dicea has, has a general meaning of, of making decisions. People make their own decisions. We've got over 300 splinter groups coming out of the worldwide church of God. It's very different from the time period under Mr. Armstrong. Dr. Hay, one of the scholars in the church, who's dead now, was commenting back in the late 80s that the Laodicean era had already begun at that time. The Laodicean era, not the Laodicean church, but the Laodicean era. The church will become obvious, I think, in time, who is actually going to be the Laodicean church. But we're in an era today. We believe that the living church of God is the remnant of the Philadelphia church that has continued over into a Laodicean era. And I think in time it's going to become obvious who the Laodicean church is going to be. Some people have issues over using this term branches for different parts of the church. You know, 
we all came out of the worldwide church of God. In that sense, we branched away. But some branches die. Some branches of trees actually die. You you can't have a branch that's being led by a false prophet. You can't have a branch of God's church that's being led by a self-appointed apostle that's teaching weird ideas. I think we've been very generous by not trying to finger people and say, well, you're a Laodicean, you're a Laodicean, you're a Laodicean. We need to be very careful that we are not becoming Laodicean by sitting back and taking it easy and not doing the not fulfilling the mission that we've been given brethren they're very powerful lessons that we can learn by studying these eras of the church very powerful lessons we need to make sure that we are focused on the right gospel that we don't go out on limbs and out on twigs and trying to make powerful doctrines out of things the bible is not that clear about you know why did mr armstrong go back and forth on the issue of makeup because it's not exactly that clear in the Bible. You can go to the last chapter of the book of Job. One of his daughters was named, and the name basically means a jar of makeup. A jar of makeup. She was apparently a very beautiful girl. And some translations uh, make that say that um, uh, her name was something like a stone of turquoise, but the idea was it was a stone that was ground up and made into some sort of a makeup situation. You know, rightly perceive the issues of makeup and birthdays and so on. There's a balanced perspective on these things. The Bible does say that we are to let our moderation be known. Our balance should be known. We're not way over here. We're not way over here. We're right down the middle with what the scriptures actually say. Brethren, these are some of the lessons that we can learn as we study the letters to the seven churches about the eras and about the challenges that they would face. We need to make sure that we are focused on the truth, that we're preaching the gospel of a coming kingdom of God, the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that God has very mercifully bestowed grace on us to give us an understanding of the truth, to help us understand the big picture and to understand our mission today. Brethren, the lessons to the seven churches or the lessons we can learn from these seven churches are very powerful, they're prophetic, They're very applicable, and they can give us guidelines for dealing with the challenges that we deal with today.